Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Robert Roland Smith, author of Breakfast with Socrates, A Day with the World's Greatest Minds. In the book, Robert, a philosopher and management consultant, takes us through a typical day and shows us what new light the thought of some of the greatest philosophers and psychoanalysts can shed when we look at our everyday activities from a different angle. The epigraph to the book reads, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives, which I suggested to Robert provided a good way of approaching what he's investigating in his book. It's interesting, isn't it? When uh, people talk about philosophy, they think philosophy must be this grand metaphysical overarching schema populated by these rather forbidding characters who have systems like Hegel or categories like Aristotle. And of course, that's true. And yet, especially for people who want to understand the world of intellectual ideas, a much better way into that vast panoply of, of concepts is through this kind of the eye of the needle, which is everyday stuff. And there's absolutely no reason why those mega themes can't become micro themes and be applied to, to what we do every day. And I, think, and I guess the more serious point is, you know, the way we spend our days really is how we live our lives. And when we make big ethical choices, we make them on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday afternoon. You know, we don't make them outside of time. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, ideas can be injected into the bloodstream of the everyday, not, not left outside it. And it's a kind of two-way process, isn't it? Because you can, you can illuminate the everyday through the big ideas. And it's also a way of coming at big ideas by means of showing how they relate to the everyday. Yeah, that's right. Let's not forget there is already a tradition of doing this. And I talk about Sartre in the very end of the book. I mean, Sartre, in a sense, has fallen out of fashion now, probably. But there's an important sense in which he was saying, you know, look at the world around us. This is matter for reflection and for understanding and penetration and so on. And there's a famous analysis he does of a waiter in a cafe to illustrate this notion of bad faith, for example. You know, he says the waiter in the cafe typically is too much like the waiter. They play, up a, they play a part. And uh, by playing a part, you lose a bit of your own freedom. You're acting out a role rather than, rather than being yourself. So again, you know, there is a tradition of this thinking it's not a completely new thing, although you might think it is what with the democratization of knowledge is today. So just give me a, a, a tour d'horizon, Robert, of the book. What, what, where are you taking us? Okay. Well, the concept of the book is pretty straightforward, and it does what it says on the tin. It's the philosophy of everyday life. So the tour, in this case, is a tour literally of the day. And the book starts with waking up and goes through to falling asleep again at night, uh, with all stops in between. So there's a chapter on getting ready to go out to work. As a chapter on being at work, having lunch, going to the gym, going to a party, and so on and so forth. Uh, and if that's the kind of uh, temporal tour, if you like, then the, the intellectual tour takes in philosophy. And there is quite a lot of philosophy in the book, pretty eclectically. I mean, you've got your classics in there. You do have Plato and Socrates and so on. But also quite a number of more recent philosophers. I'm, I'm very interested in... Jacques Derrida and Georges Bataille, the kind of French uh, post-structuralist tradition. So that's the philosophical aspect. But uh, I'm also quite keen to bring in a fair amount of psychoanalysis and psychology and literature. So philosophy, in this sense, is a is, is shorthand, I guess, for you know, history of ideas. Are you implicitly saying that philosophy 
in and of itself is insufficient, is inadequate to explain our daily lives, that it takes us so far in a rational direction. But really, we have to bring in the, the irrational and the subconscious, and that's where psychoanalysis really has to be um, brought into play. I think that's uh, that's very helpful. I mean, you've helped me understand my own book a bit better by saying that, actually. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, it's not that philosophy is inadequate. I mean, it might be my reading of philosophy is inadequate or my my range of philosoph- philosophical understanding is inadequate. But I do think there is something about the experience of being in the world which is not entirely susceptible to rational explanation, be that philosophical or purely scientific. And I think we have a duty to explore what the boundaries of understanding are all the time, you know, regardless of what direction they take us in. So for me, it's always been important to be, quotes unquote, a bit fearless about where you take uh, an idea. So it's not that I'm wedded to psychoanalysis, or it's not that I'm wedded to notions of telepathy, which I talk about a bit in the book. But I do feel that, you know, models of understanding the world have to evolve because the world will always be more complex than our understanding of it. Is it the case that you want to kind of jolt us out of our sort of complacency or our rut and make us think about things which we we take entirely for granted, like our sense of selves, perhaps, you know, and think about the the miracle of recovering consciousness in the morning and not just take that for granted, to, you know, to start at the beginning? Yeah, uh, yes, and two thoughts there. I mean, Heidegger had this uh, extraordinary phrase called, uh, in German, Seinsvergessenheit, which is this idea we forget that we're alive. And actually, we ought to be astonished by it. And there is something about the astonishment at being alive, which I think is one of the most fundamental aspects of being here. So that's the first point, which I guess is a a philosophical or existential point. The second one, I guess, and without being too portentous about it, is a slightly more political point. That point is saying, if we don't think about things critically and reflective all the time, we are much more vulnerable to being manipulated politically and ideologically by forces that lie beyond our control. So there is something for me about thought which contains liberty in it, or or at least contains the resistance to being manipulated or controlled. Now, I don't say that as such in the book, but if you're getting at my agenda, as it were, I, I guess that's part of it. So, for example, when you're talking about going to the gym, Michel Foucault is brought on with his sort of discourses of power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Foucault, as far as I know, never wrote about the gym per se, <laughs> although he was pretty fascinated in going to it for personal reasons of his own. And he was interested in all sorts of other uh, institutions, social institutions, uh, the prison, famously, hospitals and so on. And I think there's no reason why one can't borrow a kind of Foucauldian analysis to think about what the gym involves. We think of the gym as a perfectly benign space where we go and work out and make ourselves look better. But there's no reason why you can't take a slightly more sceptical Foucauldian approach and say, well, hang on a minute, any institution that's uh, carved out such a comfortable niche for itself in society is bound to be playing into the hands of a dominant ideology. Therefore, what does the gym do to preserve that ideology? Well, Maybe there is something about producing regular bodies, which is tantamount to producing regular subjects, and therefore producing a kind of identikit world. I I found the chapter on shopping particularly fascinating because you you zoom in on the shopping mall as a kind of theatre of activity, and you distinguish shopping from buying and you distinguish cash from credit. And I thought it was a very interesting sort of nexus you had there. Can you say a little bit about what's going on? That's right. 
it's a, it's quite a simple division, but I think it it helps to think about what's going on. So the mall is a is a kind of market, isn't it? Insofar as we go and buy stuff in it, but I think it's very different from being a simple evolution of the market that you might have gone to in a medieval town square, where there's a free interchange of goods and bartering and social intercourse and so on. Because I think the mall is more about inhibiting personal uh, interchange. So that's the first point. The, the mall is is not about the market in the in the old sense. A second point is yes, in the mall, the currency in the mall, while being money, has to be the credit card rather than cash. And actually, cash in a in a mall is a rather foreign object. And that's because again, there's something about the mall which is so committed to clean, odorless interchange, and it's very well captured by the symbol of the credit card, which is plastic. And it's something you retain. When you hand over cash, you literally hand over notes to somebody else and you're fingering the paper substance that somebody else has fingered in turn. So in this sense, I think we're in a completely new era of consumption. When one goes to the mall, one shops. And as part of that, one shops for what one wants. Whereas previously, to talk about it very schematically, one would go to buy things that one needed. And I think that's the distinction. In the market, you buy what you need. In a mall, you shop for what you want. And I think that you know we're, we're beyond the watershed where those two have split. To go back to Sartre and his bad faith, I suppose, I suppose a lot of the book is thinking about ways in which we can realise ourselves. And I guess you would say that in the shopping mall, that's an artificial form of self-realisation because it's is kind of borrowing against some some future ideal of ourselves that is never attainable. Is that is that true? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just on this notion of the self uh, and what it means to be a self. Again, I think there are two concepts that I would support. One is the idea that we must own ourselves and own ourselves over and against anybody else's ownership of ourselves, be that a state or a party or or a culture and so on. But having said that, I think there is always a point at which our self-ownership runs out we can only ever assimilate or know ourselves so much and again you know i return to either the psychoanalytic notion of the unconscious where we can't assimilate or capture all that we are or i guess a more philosophical notion from the continental tradition that part of us is riven by what you might call the other sounds very grandiose but I think there is a strong sense in which an otherness will always escape us in some way. We won't ever necessarily coincide with ourselves completely. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because from that non-closure of the self, the, the interruption of the self by itself, it, the self then opens out and enters into the future and enters into contingency and chance and so on, all the things that would have been foreclosed if we were entirely identical to ourselves. Yes, chance and contingency and randomness seemed to me another theme that was running through the book, something that yes. that you sort of prized as part of what made us human. Absolutely. And in that, uh, the book rests on two very classical pillars. I mean, you'll know the Greeks love their distinction between chance on the one hand and necessity on the other. And I think it's pretty true to say that the necessity tradition has been the dominant one. And I guess I'm just keen to reintroduce notions of chance because no matter what theories we have about the world you know wherever we are then they're never the final one you know there's always more future to come and that means our mastery of the present is always going to be somewhat circumscribed 
But rather than lamenting that fact, I think that's an opportunity for us to be innovative in our thinking and to welcome in new forms, not just of thinking, but of art in particular and the aesthetic. And I think the aesthetic opens out from where chance comes in, really. And I, you know, uh, and I guess those are, those are where my prejudices probably lie. Tell me about, you mentioned the continental tradition a moment ago. Tell me about the appeal of that, because it's, it's, it's noticeable the Anglo-Saxon analytic tradition is not, is not highly represented in the book, perhaps for obvious reasons. But do you think the continental tradition addresses these questions which fascinate you in a, in a particularly fruitful, revealing, useful way? I do, uh, and no doubt that's for you know, perfectly ordinary autobiographical reasons. Um, you know, I started out as a student of English at Oxford, and at that time in the mid-80s, it was very fashionable to study literary theory. Uh, once you get into literary theory, you cross the channel pretty quickly, and once you're on the channel, this new world opens up, and you're surrounded by the Foucaults, the Derridas, the Baudrillards, the Blanchots, and so on. And you know, one is really talking a different language at that point. And although it seems pretty weird, you then realise that language has antecedents which go back a very long way. I mean, Hegel is the obvious person to refer back to. Uh, so that's the kind of autobiographical aspect of it. Do I think they can reveal things differently? Absolutely, I do. I, I guess ultimately what one wants naively perhaps, is to somehow produce a more integrated idiom that can use British empiricism, can use continental philosophy, and, uh, as it were, gets the best of both. And I say that partly for institutional reasons. I mean, anybody who studied philosophy in this country will know that the walls around it are very, very high, and the kind of academic policing of boundaries is is uh, is pretty intense, and, and to my view, pretty futile. I mean, there's I don't see any reason at all for academics, other than small p political reasons, for academics to to maintain those boundaries. I think intellectual life should be, you know, like a free state, as porous as possible. That's the main kind of intellectual reason for, for, for believing in that. Now, I know that one of the hats you wear is as a management consultant, and I wondered if you deploy, you know, Hegel and Walter Benjamin and <laughs> Lacan's mirror stage when you're doing that, I means subtly perhaps, but d does this all come into play when you're uh, discussing, you know, how to run a company? Short answer is not very much, and it's pretty latent when it's there at all. But increasingly, now that my clients know I have this furtive uh, moonlighting life where I, you know, slip on my black polar neck in the evening and go off to go off to read Being and Nothingness, they are increasingly asking me to introduce rather than suppress that kind of material. And that happens in in one of two ways: either they'll ask for a kind of freestanding insert on Descartes or something. Or more typically, I'll just try and weave it into some of the work I do or use it to illustrate a point. Let me give you an example. So I've been working a reasonable amount with the NHS recently. And in that work, I've drawn on some work by a psychoanalytic social scientist called Isabel Mingy's Lyth, who talks about the ways in which all hospitals are built on defending themselves against the horrors that go on within. So if you're in an acute ward in particular, you know, you're dealing with blood and guts and all sorts of nasty, you know, human uh, expressions of themselves. And the other thing you will see in a hospital is an extraordinary level of cleanliness and order, even bureaucracy. And what this lady, Isabel Mingy's lie argues, is the, the order and 
uh, neatness in a hospital is a defensive response to the chaos and blood and guts all around. So the hospital actually operates on these, um, on that tension, if you like. And so I, you know, I've used that example and spoken around it uh, with some of my NHS clients, and it it just helps move the conversation along or reframes an issue. That's um, not the answer, but it, it you know it provides new lenses on on the work they do. Mm. Last question, Robert. I wondered, you know, if the book is in a sense a sort of call to us to wake up and to to live and think more authentically, is the the kind of governing metaphor for how you think we are at the moment, the slowly boiling frog, because there is a slowly boiling frog in the book. And I thought, you know, when, when I came across that, my eyes sort of went, went like that. And I thought, is this, is this perhaps the condition which you think we are, to mix metaphors, sort of sleepwalking into? It's very, very good, very helpful. It's either a slowly boiled frog or a slowly boiled egg, isn't it? Uh, which is on the front cover of the book, uh, for those who haven't seen it. Yes, I think the egg frog is slowly boiling. And, uh, you know, here's me doing my Jeremiah for a moment, I, I do think there is a sense in which the ways in which we are given to think about the world seem to be becoming more uh, uniform and uh, more singular, and that that's not a good thing. And I think we need to pluralise the ways we think about the world, because by doing that, we create new ideas, we create more freedom, we create a future for ourselves. Robert Roland smith Breakfast with Socrates is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast. But you can find out more about the featured title, as well as several million others, by going to the Blackwell's website at blackwell.co.uk. There's also a podcast archive there with around 100 interviews to explore. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Blackwell's online podcast. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.